This morning we come to the second part of John's Gospel. It's not quite accurate to call it the second half, because in terms of chapters we're already over halfway, but John chapter 13 marks the start of a new focus in John's Gospel. We could call chapters 1 to 12 the book of signs. In chapters 1 to 11, Jesus revealed his glory through a series of six miraculous signs. Taken together, those signs show who Jesus is. They reveal his identity as God come in the flesh. They show his authority over creation, over sickness, and even over death. The six signs in chapters 1 to 11 also reveal Jesus' mission. He came to bring eternal life, life in all its fullness. In chapters 1 to 11, we have seen who Jesus is. The people of Israel have seen who he is. His glory has been revealed. And in chapter 12, Jesus challenged the people to believe in him. They had seen and heard enough. It was time to trust what Jesus had revealed about himself. It was time to rely completely on him. That's what it means to believe in him. And in chapter 12, after giving that challenge to the crowds in Jerusalem, we were told Jesus left and hid himself from them. From now on, Jesus' focus is going to change. Jesus knows that in less than 24 hours, he will be dead, crucified on the cross. Jesus knows he only has hours left, and he's going to spend those hours not with the crowds, but with his disciples, the group of 12 who've been with him from the beginning. Jesus is going to prepare the disciples to understand the cross and to carry out their own mission after the cross. If chapters 1 to 12 were the book of signs, we could call chapters 13 to 21 the book of exaltation. Jesus has already revealed his glory through six signs. Now he will reveal his glory in a supreme way through the seventh sign, the greatest sign of all, his death, resurrection, and return to his Father. He will be lifted up on the cross. He will be lifted up from the grave. And he will be lifted up to heaven. And in chapters 13 to 17, before the cross, we find Jesus alone with his disciples, preparing them for the cross and their life after the cross. That's the context for what we read at the beginning of chapter 13. So let's turn there. If you haven't already done so, you'll find it in the church Bibles on page 1081. In the larger print Bibles, 1673. John chapter 13, and we'll read the first 17 verses. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel round his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped round him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet... You also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is God's Word. And it tells us Jesus washed his disciples' feet to explain his death on the cross and to show what it means to follow him. First, in verses 1 to 11, Jesus washed his disciples' feet to explain his death on the cross. What Jesus does in these verses is an illustration. Before he dies on the cross, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to understand his death on the cross. Verse 1 reminds us what's going on around Jesus and his disciples. It is just before the Passover festival. The annual celebration of the Exodus, that time when God delivered his people from slavery and death, through the blood of a lamb. We've already seen in chapter 12, Jesus knows this is no ordinary Passover. This is the time when he will deliver his people from slavery and death through his own blood. 
This is no ordinary Passover, and this meal Jesus will share with his disciples is no ordinary Passover meal. It has great significance. Look what we're told at the end of verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus loved them to the end. That last phrase could also be translated to the full extent, to the limit. And this is one of those places in John's gospel where I don't think we have to choose just one meaning. We're to understand it both ways. Jesus is going to love his disciples to the end, to his very last breath. He will go on loving them through betrayal, through forsakenness, right to the very end. Till he has accomplished all he can to accomplish for his people. And Jesus is going to love them to the limit. In his love for his people, Jesus will go to the very depths of humiliation and self-sacrifice. He will love his people with love that goes to the limit. Love of the greatest intensity. Jesus' last word on the cross will be, it is finished. In the language Jesus spoke, it was only one word. A form of the same word that's translated end here in verse 1. With his last word, Jesus indicated he really had loved to the end and to the limit. He loved till his last breath. And he loved to the greatest extent. And that's what Jesus is going to illustrate now before it happens. He's going to illustrate that with his actions at this meal. He will use a bowl of water and a towel to explain the cross. But before Jesus takes the bowl of water and the towel, verses 2 and 3 give us two realities that form the context for what Jesus does. Verse 2 says, The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. We've heard about Judas before, and we will hear more about him before this night is over. But the key point here is that behind Judas stands the devil, Satan. The one who's been trying to work against God's purposes since the earliest days of creation. From his first appearance in Scripture in Genesis chapter 3, when Satan encouraged the first man and woman to doubt God's goodness and forsake his word. Satan has been encouraging Judas to do exactly the same thing. He has been nudging Judas to betray Jesus. Now Judas is responsible for his actions. He is certainly doing here what he wants to do. John has made that clear to us. Judas is a willing partner in the devil's work. Judas and the devil are in a conspiracy of evil. That's one reality behind the context here. The other reality is given in verse 3. 
Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. As Jesus shares this meal with his disciples, he is not a powerless victim. All things are under Jesus' power in these moments. Jesus could very easily vaporize Judas. He could eliminate Judas with a thought. Or if he wanted, with a blast of divine fire. Jesus is undiminished deity. The most powerful individual on the planet. That is the other reality that forms the context for what Jesus does next. Faced with the schemes of his enemy, the most powerful individual on the planet gets up from the table and he takes the position of a slave. As you and I read about this foot washing, maybe what comes into our mind is some sort of solemn, meaningful ritual like an initiation for the Masons, or some kind of tea ceremony, something with significant meaning. But in fact, commentators tell us, in this culture, foot washing was the most mundane chore there was. Country roads and town streets were nothing but dirt and dust. And shoes were nothing but open sandals. And so when anyone came indoors, foot washing was a necessary chore. It had no meaning or significance. Except that the one doing it was the lowest ranked person in the house. When foot washing happened, you could learn that Whoever knelt down to do the foot washing was at the bottom of the ladder. If you were invited to someone's house for a meal, the host certainly wouldn't wash your feet. The servants wouldn't do it either if they could avoid it. It was considered humiliating even for a servant. If there was a slave available, they would get the job. And even the slaves would fight among themselves to get out of doing it. That was the only meaning involved in foot washing. If you got the job of doing it, you were as low as it was possible to go. The lowest slave. And so, when Jesus takes off his jacket wraps a towel around his waist, and starts washing the disciples' dirty feet, it's hard to think of anything less appropriate. Because as we've seen, Jesus is not just a human host entertaining guests. That would have made this shocking enough. But this is in another league entirely. This is God washing humanity's feet. This is God taking the role of the lowest slave to humanity. 
Remember, all things are under Jesus' power. The highest position is His. He is Lord of all creation. And yet He takes on the job of one who has no power or position at all. Jesus belongs not just at the head of this particular table in this particular room. Jesus belongs at the highest table of heaven. But he takes the position furthest from this table among the filthy feet. And not surprisingly, the disciples are shocked. They're embarrassed, actually. This isn't right. And Peter, as usual, acts as the spokesman in verse 6. Peter knows very well this is upside down. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Look at Jesus' reply in verse 7. You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. So Jesus points out what he's doing here has a significance Peter will only understand later. What Jesus is doing here explains what he's going to do in a few hours' time. Here at the meal, Jesus is taking on the role of the lowest slave. On the cross, he will die the death of the lowest slave. On the cross, he will take self-sacrificing love to the limit, to its full extent. And what Jesus does here also explains what he will accomplish on the cross in a few hours' time. Notice in verse 8, when Peter says, No, you shall never wash my feet, Jesus replies, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. To have a part with someone means to have an inheritance with them, to have a share in what they have to give. And if Jesus was just talking here about washing Peter's feet, that would be an over-the-top thing for Jesus to say. Because it really wouldn't be the end of the world if Peter insisted on pulling his feet away and leaving them dirty. But the point is, Jesus isn't just talking about washing feet. He's talking about what he will do later as he humbles himself to death on the cross, pouring out his own lifeblood to wash away Peter's sin. That will seem even more inappropriate to Peter if it is not right for the all-powerful God to kneel down and wash Peter's feet with water. What about the all-powerful God dying a criminal's death for Peter? And shedding his blood for Peter. And so if Peter won't accept Jesus' humble service with a towel and a bowl of water, how will he accept Jesus' humble service on the cross? And then where would Peter be? Never mind being left with filthy feet, Peter would be left with a filthy heart. 
Because as John later understood and wrote in his first letter, it is only the blood of Jesus that purifies us from all sin. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so if Peter, or if you and I, won't accept that our hearts are so filthy, so filthy that it took the utter self-humiliation of the Son of God to cleanse our hearts, if you and I won't accept that, then we will never have a part in what Jesus achieved on the cross. We will never share in the cleansing he brought about on the cross. We have to get to the point where we are able to say, for my cleansing, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And equally, the only way you and I will begin to understand the depth of Jesus' love for us is when we look at Almighty God here, washing the filthy feet of human beings. We look at this and we realize this is only just a hint of how much he humbled himself to wash our hearts of the corruption and the guilt of sin. But he did it. Jesus loved to the end and to the limit so we could be washed clean. On the cross, he humbled himself completely to cleanse us completely. Never think that your sin is too ingrained for Jesus to wash you clean. Never think the stains are too deep for Jesus to wash them out. So that you stand before God truly purified. Wholly purified by the blood of Jesus. Never doubt that Jesus went as low as he needed to go so he could wash every sin away. Even mine. Even yours. Here is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Back in chapter 10 of John's Gospel, Jesus described a picture of the shepherd and his sheep. And then he applied that picture in several different ways. At one point, he described himself as the gate of the sheepfold. He used the picture in that way. And at another point, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. So the same picture provided different illustrations of who Jesus is. And here, in verse 10 of our passage, something similar seems to be going on with the foot washing. In the previous verses, Jesus has used foot washing to illustrate his work of cleansing on the cross. Here, he uses foot washing in a different way to illustrate the habit of daily repentance on our part. In verse 10, Jesus says to Peter, those who have had a bath 
need only to wash their feet. In other words, Jesus' work on the cross provides a spiritual bath for us. It cleanses the whole of us. When we put our faith in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, we are completely clean. We've had that once-for-all spiritual bath which we never need to take again. What we will have to do, however, is keep on bringing the daily grime of our lives to Jesus. Confessing our daily sins and asking his forgiveness. And we do that every day knowing we are fundamentally clean. We are cleansed through faith in his work on the cross. And now, because we don't want sin to get a foothold in our lives, because we don't want sin to master us and rob us of the joy of our salvation, we come to Jesus in fresh, daily repentance. We've had the once-for-all bath, And because we treasure that purity Christ has given us, we want to deal with the daily grime that comes along. And that daily cleansing comes from exactly the same source as our once-for-all cleansing. It all comes from the cross, where Jesus humbled himself completely to cleanse us completely. Jesus has already said the disciples will only understand all of that in the future, after the cross. But here and now, as Jesus finishes this foot washing, as he lays aside the towel and returns to the table, there is something about this the disciples can understand immediately. Jesus washed his disciples' feet not only to explain his death on the cross, but also to show what it means to follow him. Jesus did not only humble himself to cleanse us from sin, he also humbled himself to set a pattern for us. Look at verse 13. After Jesus returns to the table, he says to the disciples, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Jesus says, teacher and Lord are good words to use for me. They're appropriate titles to give me. But if you really mean those words, you will let me be your teacher and Lord. You will follow, you will allow my words and my example to rule your life. Jesus says, if I truly am your teacher and Lord... You will fully commit to bringing your thoughts, attitudes, and actions under the authority of my words and my example. Otherwise, it means nothing to call me teacher and Lord. And Jesus says, what I've just done when I washed your feet, the thing that was so shocking to you, the thing that seemed so inappropriate, So beneath my dignity, that's a pattern for you to follow. It's a pattern for your own lives. 
verse 14. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So we might wonder, does this mean we should have regular foot washing ceremonies in church? Maybe on a Thursday night? Where we all demonstrate our humility by scrubbing each other's smelly feet? Is that what we should be doing? No. That would be entirely missing the point. Because that would turn foot washing into something actually a little bit grand. Something that had a bit of kudos to it. But the whole point of what Jesus did is, in his time and culture, foot washing had nothing grand about it at all. It was the most common, mundane, inglorious job you could do for someone. That's why it was humiliating to do it. It didn't even seem to achieve anything. It would have to be done all over again tomorrow. If foot washing had made the person doing it look good, the disciples would have already done it for each other before Jesus stepped in to do it. Foot washing stands for whatever unpleasant, uninviting, unglamorous acts of service you and I might do for others. All those opportunities for humble service that we would rather pretend we didn't notice. Because they're inconvenient. They're thankless. And honestly, they're a bit distasteful to us. We feel like we're a bit too important to do them. Things like giving someone a lift. Or helping clean up someone's mess. Maybe a literal mess around the house. Maybe a mess of some other kind. A relationship mess, maybe. Or what about the humble service of just sitting with someone and listening to them? Even when they don't seem to have much to say, even when what they're saying doesn't seem really to make sense. And actually, we might have maybe have heard it a few times before. We might be tempted to think our time is too valuable for those sorts of things. But hasn't Jesus just shown us if He, Almighty God, who probably had better things to do, if He did not think it was beneath His dignity to do a slave's job and wash filthy feet, then surely nothing is below our dignity. 
And we cannot come to this with the attitude of, what will the person do for me in return if I do this for them? We can't think of it that way. Sinclair Ferguson explains what our attitude has to be as Christians. How has the Lord Jesus treated me? Then that is the model for the way I will treat others. With his help, I will display the same grace he has shown to me. Did Jesus die for you because there was some equally awesome thing you might do for him in return? Never mind equally awesome. Was there anything at all you could do for him in return? Any way that you might repay him? No, Jesus humbled himself graciously. On the cross, Jesus went to the depths of darkness and humiliation, knowing that you and I couldn't repay him. You and I will never save anyone. Our acts of service will never cleanse anyone from their sin. In that respect, we cannot follow Jesus. But we can approach our acts of service the same way Jesus did. Serving as a gracious gift. Not expecting to be served in return. In the church, we often talk about training leaders. We have conferences and we have seminars for leaders. But Jesus seems more interested in training servants. What about people who don't deserve it? Annoying people. Irritating, ungrateful people. People who seem to take your acts of service for granted. Well, think about this. There are 12 disciples in this room with Jesus. And there's no indication in the text that Jesus left anyone out. Verse 12 talks about him finishing washing their feet. That implies he washed everybody's feet, including Judas. Back in verse 2, we were told the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. And verse 11 tells us Jesus knew that. Jesus was not in the dark about Judas and his intentions. Jesus knew. But Jesus knelt on the floor in front of Judas, just like he did with everyone else. And Jesus humbly washed Judas's filthy feet, just like he did with everyone else. So, with that picture in my mind, do I really want to say I'm not going to serve someone because they don't deserve it? Do you want to say that? 
Are we servants of Jesus greater than our master? Are we messengers of Jesus greater than the one who sent us? Look at Jesus' final words in this passage in verse 17. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. How will we be blessed if we follow the pattern Jesus set for us? Well, certainly there will be eternal blessings, yes. But just as certainly, there will be blessings here and now as well. Surely, as you and I take this call seriously, as we enter into this kind of humiliating service, serving even when the people we're serving don't seem to deserve it, surely we will be blessed by a new understanding of how Jesus served us. Surely we will be blessed with a new appreciation of the depths of his gracious love for us. Love shown to the unlovely. Love shown to those who reeked with the filth of rebellion and sin. As you and I kneel down and serve, we will be blessed with a new closeness to the one who humbled himself completely to cleanse us completely. Let's respond to God's word together as we sing meekness and majesty. And then as we remind ourselves one more time about the only thing that can wash away our sin.
This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Amen.